Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And as always, each month here, we pick a book and read it and talk about it for a month. This month's book has been the Binti Trilogy, a trilogy of novellas that together make up about a book's length (laughs) of words. Um, And this episode, we are talking about Binti Home, the second, the middle book in in the novella trilogy. Um, Binti Home is a continuation of Binti, where Binti, uh, the titular character, goes home. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, we'll say right up here that actually we're going to be talking about the plot of this book in depth. So obviously spoilers. Right. Spoilers. I don't think going home is actually a spoiler. That's, you know, more or less in the title. (laughs) Right, right, right. But we will get into it. We will will get into spoilers. Um, There's also I don't think there are other um, content warnings for this episode that I can think of thing, you know, there's the typical little bit of violence. There's like people arguing at home, that kind of thing. But it's, it's, I think for the most part, uh, a pretty, a pretty good and straightforward book. Warning. This cultural property contains content. <laughs> um, and then I also just really quickly at the front here, we said two things which were factually incorrect in the last episode. So I think we wanted to take care of those. Um, one, in fact, I said both of them with the, you know, confidence of like, a <laughs> of who I am, uh, which the first is that, um, you know, we mentioned the Kush were not meant to be any particular ethnic group. And that's not true. They're meant to be, I think, North African or Middle Eastern Arabs in particular. Um, but they also, you know, like that's the, the Kush is a name that is not used by people. It's sort of meant to be a little bit of like reflective of them. Um, and then also the words that Binti uses to refer to the Medus in their own language are not made up words. They're actually Igbo words, um, Igbo being the uh, ethnicity that Nnedi Okorafor is from. So Okwu, Okooko, those words are all like Igbo words. Um, Okwu o- in particular is a really cool one. It means something like word. It means several different things. But right. in this case, according to Nnedi Okorafor, it's meant to mean word, um, which has a lot of cool resonances with uh, things that happen in the books. Mm-hmm. So for this episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different from what we normally do. Um, We figured we have three post reads this month. We can experiment with them a little bit. Uh, But we're actually going to be walking through the whole plot of the book, talking about the themes as they arrive in the plot, as opposed to talking about the themes separately. And it should be fun. It'll be interesting. We're going to we're going to see if we like this structure or not, because it's, you know, it's different from what we've done before. It's going to be an exciting thrill ride. Buckle up. Indeed. So before we get started with the book, we just wanted to talk about the plot at a or uh, the book at a meta level a little bit. Um, We liked it. I think I really liked it on reread. I think I liked it much like Binti on reread felt like the same amount of liking it. And this book, actually, I felt like I liked it a lot more reading it the second time. Uh, yeah, I, I loved rereading Binti Home as well. I, I, it's hard for me to say if I liked it more because I liked it so much the first time. I definitely got more out of it, though. It's um, it's interesting reading books again because I do it so rarely. Um, mm-hmm. I know, Adrian, you you uh, you read reread books more often than I right. do. Right. Well, I have a terrible memory, so it's 
pretty much if I wait two years, it's like reading a book for the first time again. (laughs) (laughs) I also have a bad memory. I really wouldn't worry about it. Um, (laughs) Although I, I, it is interesting because I did used to reread books more often when I was younger. Um, Well, I, I remember in particular a lot of Star Wars expanded universe books that I read like three or four times each. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Bacta War. <laughs> it's a it's a deep cut. All right. Um, but I as far as Binti Home rereading it, there was another thing I wanted to mention, which is that um uh there's a review of Binti Home that I particularly liked that made a great point. Review at NPR by a woman named Amal El Motar, who's uh actually a friend of mine and a really wonderful writer in her own right. Um, and we'll link her website and all her stuff. Um in this review, she makes the the point that, you know, Binti and Binti Homer are, are different genres. I mean, Binti is like a thriller, basically, in a lot of ways, at least. And Binti Home is is not. It's it's almost like the original Binti um kind of sets itself up to be the book that Binti Home is, but then yeah. it's a bait and switch and actually turns out to be a thriller. And then after it ends, next book is the thing that Binti seemed like it was originally going to be. <laughs> right. In other words, the story of a young woman growing up and dealing with her family and her... Going to uh, school, there's a few chapters at Umsa University. Right, right. Um, so I thought that was a good point because, you know, when you reread a thriller, I mean, by definition, since a thriller re- relies on kind of plot, you know, if you already know the plot, it's going to be a very different and perhaps a less compelling um, reread. Right. Well, and I think too, particularly with like, you know, very intelligent thrillers like Binti, it's, I wasn't driven by the plot so much on the reread, but it meant that I could be focused a little bit more on some of the ideas and the world building and other stuff that was going on in a way I didn't necessarily the first time I read it. Oh yeah. Good point. I mean, it is in some sense a thriller, but it's also a lot more than that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. It's it's a good thriller, so it's actually fun rereading. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, but I, I, I agree that they are different genres, and I, um, you know, I think that might have been part of why I liked this book more on the second reread or the second read, just because it was, um, it's a little bit, I, I, I don't want to say slower, but I guess it, it's a little bit more like uh character driven in a way and like relationship driven in particular right like binti mm-hmm. is very much about binti solving problems and the other characters are often like those problems that she's solving like are the other characters are the medus whereas here it's a little bit more like relationshipy and especially when you get into the stuff at home so i guess i guess we can talk about that in the plot i don't i don't need to go into that too much right now yeah i'm sure we'll get into more specific reasons or things that we liked and Exactly. So, um, so yeah, so let's get, let's get into the plot of the book. Um, I don't know how we'll do this. We'll, you know, interrupt each other and talk about it as we like remember stuff and want to like talk about specific themes along the way. So, um, get into it. The book starts not exactly in medias res, but like a little bit, like it starts with Binti using her a Dawn and she's working with a teacher who has been helping her get better at, um, controlling the adon and like using the adon and like actually like making it work um which is which is kind of cool and there's a point at which she uh what happened so yeah so she's at umsa university she's using the adon and she kind of like goes into it and begins talking to it like it is itself intelligent in some way and it is talking back to her and there's a really i think um 
the most thematically on point piece of all of this is that it asks her her name. She gives it her like full uh, Himba name and it says, no, there's more. Yeah. And she's like, no, there isn't and starts getting really angry. And this is this thing that's beginning to be introduced um, right here in this first kind of introduction to the book is that Binti has been like experiencing these mood swings and getting really angry out of nowhere and is having kind of a hard time of dealing with it. Um, and then uh, it, the plot kind of begins moving really quickly from there through. She has to like go and run and help uh, Okwu, who is doing its final what is it it's like it's final like like thesis exam. for a class yeah exam yeah, for a class where it's exam. like it's made some like badass armor and but it doesn't like its teacher so it and its teacher are like actually fighting to the death like as part of its exam <laughs> oak was just adorable don't yeah. we love oak i love hi- adorable so, in a very like prickly kind of way <laughs> yeah there's another character that it pet, will so- soon be a poisonous in- snake <laughs> Well, not a pet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> More like your roommate poisonous sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, who you get along with really well, but who like poisons or almost poisons everybody else you know. And it's <laughs> such a problem. <laughs> um, there's another character that gets introduced at Umza University, another student who is Kush named Haifa, who has this amazing relationship with Okwu, where they just like give each other shit constantly oh, right right <laughs> and it's it's funny because it's you know it's a classic kind of um uh it's a classic uh homo social spaces um we're bonding by insulting type of interaction but mm-hmm. um but the stakes are so much higher than normal <laughs> because it's all so dangerous <laughs> i just think it's really funny Right, because Okwu has like <laughs> killing appendages like built directly into his biology, <laughs> and like the peace treaty between their two peoples, like the ink is still drying. Like, <laughs> it's great. Uh, yeah. So, um, after that, we actually we get to kind of a cool point, which is that um, Binti goes to therapy, and we get to see one of her therapy sessions. And this is this is a point I really liked in the book because. You know, the the Binti, the the first novella was obviously like like she sees everyone she knows on the ship die and she gets like alien biology inserted into her and like all this like traumatic stuff happens. And instead of treating it like and she's better in the next book because she's strong. Right. It's like, no, she has a lot of like trauma and is trying to like work through that trauma. And it's hard. Yeah, she doesn't just gain experience points. She gains trauma points. And she right. must do something about that. Like a real person. Yep. And so I I don't know. I, I liked these scenes. You know, it felt in some ways that maybe the therapist was written to be a little bit like clueless. <laughs> um, well, that might be. I, I exited an interesting point, actually. But I, I wonder how, how much of that is supposed to be uh, the therapist just trying to do their job. And how much of that is maybe a, maybe a, I don't want to say a comment on how therapy works because therapy is not presented in a, in an unflattering light. In a light. bad light. No, yeah, not at all. That's not the case. But, but, but it did feel, uh, you know, yeah, there, there was something in there that felt a little bit like, you know, and I think maybe part of what it was doing was just setting up the difference between the kind of, you know, therapy, you know, like Western you know, European American therapy construct 
versus Binti's own therapy that she decides she needs to do, which is to go home and take part in the traditional pilgrimage that women her age do in the Himba culture. Yeah. That's and, right. Yeah. And I think I think some of that is just setting up those two things as, you know, not necessarily being in opposition, at least like being like two different ways of of achieving the same goal for her. Yeah. Yeah. Two different things that she's going to do that will both help her. Right. Um, like two different rituals. Right. Like the, you know, therapy is like kind of a weekly or daily ritual, depending on how often you're going. And in the same way that, you know, this pilgrimage is like one big kind of like a single life event style ritual that you do with a lot of people instead of with one other person intimately. Yeah. And so we start, you know, uh, we start getting a lot more about Binti's home culture, about her, Mm -hmm. her Himba culture and also her sort of family culture. Um, both of which are obviously incredibly important to her. And she kind of, and, and it's cool because it creates this, since we didn't get a lot of that in book one, it, getting it in book two, it really, it, it almost, uh, the structure of having little of that in book one and then a lot more in book two, uh, really drives home the point that Binti was kind of in the way that young people sometimes do. She was kind of ignoring part of herself as she worked on a different part of herself. And then now it's coming home that having done that is coming home to roost. And she's sort of forced to face again, that first part of herself that she had ignored. Right, right. And I think for, you know, going back to like the what I was talking about last episode and like the ways that Binti is, you know, relatable to me, like that's that's definitely one this thing of like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like as much as you can ignore home for a while, like it's still inside of you bubbling up from Mm -hmm. time to time. (laughs) Yeah, I relate to that, too. Honestly, yeah. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, I think we can we can, you know, she. Like stuff happens, blah, blah, blah. But eventually she um, goes back home. She she and Okwu get permission to go back to to Earth, to Namibia, more or less. Uh, which is a big deal for Okwu because mm-hmm. he is going to be the first Medus to go to Earth since the Kush Medus war that happened off screen before book one. Right. Um, Which happened like hundreds of years ago or something. It's not, it's kind of unclear what happened like, you know, yeah. in history, even in book one. Yeah. 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 Um, but nonetheless, like has not been forgotten is a, is a very big deal. And mm-hmm. there, are, it is expected that there is going to be a lot of, there might be problems that arise from this, but it's like considered a good, you know, it's a good diplomatic gesture. Right. And one thing that I like is Binti Binti calls bringing Okwu home as a part of this treaty that she has helped negotiate um, her her good deed for her pilgrimage or her great deed for her pilgrimage. I think, I think oh, that's what I, it I is. I forgot. That is so good. I love that. <laughs> I love how there's this way in which Binti is like a completely badass intergalactic hero, but it's so understated because so much of the action of the book is taking place in her head and in her like interpersonal relationships rather than in this mode of describing political event, political event, ramification, mm-hmm. ploy, you know, it's very those personal. Th- right. Those things are still happening. The political events are kind of happening, but they're almost happening like, you know, in the background and this and, and, so when you suddenly remember that they are happening and that actually Binti like averted war and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> saved countless lives and is this amazing hero, like it makes it all the more incredible because it feels more like the way in which a real person does extraordinary things. They do yeah. them and and they, you know, whatever remarking upon the extraordinary thing that they've done 
is going to happen happens, you know, kind of on its own and separate from the actual event. The event mm-hmm. is just whatever it is. It just happens. So she, you know, eventually they get on another shrimp shrimp. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they do. That's right. Yep. It's not another <laughs> shrimp though. Eventually they get on another ship back to earth and it turns out to be the shrimp ship from book number one. It's uh, what, what you, you found fish. its name. Third fish is its name. Yeah, third fish. And it's pregnant. <laughs> I love third fish so much. <laughs> it's my favorite character, maybe yep. in any book, maybe in any <laughs> cultural property or any story. Third yep. fish is the third fish is like the, the like standout, like, you know, silent scene stealer. <laughs> yeah. If this, right, so far. E- exactly. If this were a, massive international cinema sensation with you know merchandise tie-ins the globe over then third fish would be the plushie that sells the best (laughs) it's the bb8 of uh (laughs) that's right that's right but unlike bb8 third fish is a giant shrimp spaceship that flies through Flies space. through intergalactic space faster than light <laughs> speeds, has plants in its lung. And is I love the, just the details of like, you know, it's it's happy. Like people kind of like mention its emotional state at time. Like it's not just like a, you know, we're, we're not quite sure. Like, does it talk? Does it have society? Stuff like that. But we do know that, like, you know, it has feelings. It has desires like it wants mm-hmm. to get back to Earth quickly so it can have its baby. You know, it's it's a cool little uh, the it's whole thing so is very cool. Nice. It's like oh, nice. Yeah. It like feels it good. It, it is. I mean, it's sort of you know there are other there are other um, science fiction or fantasy uh, worlds where um, living ships are explored. But mm-hmm. honestly, this is my favorite one. This is oh, like yeah. my like, favorite way ever that living ships are handled in a in a fictional universe. Right. Um, I would they, say maybe the one like I do enjoy the culture ships, but those are oh, different. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like I they're, didn't, they're I like more them. explicitly like AI as opposed to just like, you know, it's an animal thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is maybe the same category, in which case it might be right. a tie. But, but it has it has like, you know, they're. I feel like they're different and they have like, you know. It's a very different way of handling it that I really appreciate. Yeah. So what do you like about it, Adrian? I want to say what I like about it too, but. Yeah, totally. Um, You know, honestly, it's cute. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I like about it. I was going to go in with this whole thing, uh, yeah, but like the truth is like, it's really cute. And I love that. It is that. cute. That's true. <laughs> it is. It's adorable. Right. The shrimp ship, you just want to like hug its little lungs, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and Binti like, you know. Okay, tell me tell me what you like about it that we should yeah, keep Yeah, I, I also like that. Um, but uh, what I like about it the most is that it combines um, in one part of the book a really cool character who is cool in their own right as a character in the story, mm-hmm. who has cool abilities, who has an interesting position in the narrative, combines all that with... Um, a lot of complicated and interesting statements about technology and the place of technology in our lives and how perhaps we can imagine a different way of integrating things that do things for us with a more um, mature kind of interaction between the world and us. Like a more equal interaction. Yeah, it's like if you think of technology as stuff that does things for you, 
um, you know, there's a lot of ways that that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you, you know, forget about the stuff itself and you only care about the it doing things for you part, mm-hmm. in which case, you know, you may there, therefore treat it badly or ignore constant, like third order consequences of using it or whatever. Right. Um, if instead, you know, you think of the technology as entity that helps me, mm-hmm. you know, may, you can have a relationship with it and it can have a relationship with you. Um, which right. just seems like it has a lot more mature possibilities. Well, if I can, if I can go out on a limb here, I mean, this I think speaks to me to a lot of the stuff that's happening in the tech world right now with stuff like Alexa or Google Home or you know various like bot AI interfaces, or particularly the stuff like um, uh, there's a lot of these startups which have like um, artificial intelligent in quotation marks executive assistants. And, you know, there's 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 been some, you know, a little bit of maybe kind of like fear mongering type press around people like, you know, yelling at their Alexa or whatever and like treating their Alexa poorly. And like, listen, like the Alexa isn't doesn't have feelings, (laughs) you know, like the Google Home doesn't have feelings. It's just like a sound at the same time, like when you when you kind of like get in the mode of like oh it's okay for me to like yell at my alexa then it's that a lot easier to get in the mode of like it's okay for me to like yell at my server in a restaurant or it's okay for me to you know uh, you know i think also with these like a lot of these like kind of like artificial intelligent like executive assistants or what you know like booking software that kind of thing like it's not it's not actually artificial intelligence. It's like people put behind like several layers of like conversation interface, but like there's often actually people behind the scenes doing most of the smart stuff. You know, it's like alienating people from each other (laughs) in order to like charge less for people's labor. And it doesn't feel good, especially compared to something like the shrimp ship where it's like, Hey, it's a person. Yeah. It's a thing. It's a, it's a, it's a living thing. It's a, mm-hmm. it's an entity that is on par with you, mm-hmm. that you have a relationship with, that you both work together, and th- your working together is also. I mean, this is now beyond anything that the book talks about, but like perhaps you know the working together can be uh, defined in ways that are more um, emotionally satisfying than a lot of working together relationships. I mean, in the book, you know, they're kind of almost friends, but yet it's also presumably the case that like somebody's paying for this trip. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, no, I explicitly Ooms a university is paying yeah. like a lot of money for the trip. Yeah. Um, so it's not like you know some happy post-socialist utopia scenario where people just like work together and you know nobody has to pay for anything or something like that. Right. Um, but anyway, so uh, I just uh, real quick. To, to agree with something that you just said, Adrian, um, I, 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 and, and to go even further, I mean, I think you're, you're completely right about the, the, the way that, um, you know, interacting, uh, having an, uh, uh, an immature or, um, not thoughtful interaction with an inanimate object can seem to be totally useless or to totally like unimportant like you know oh i threw my book against the wall because i was mad at it like who cares it's a book you know um i totally understand that point of view certainly you know if if um you're thinking about the difference between like a person and a book you know i would hope people would pick the person over the book 
No um, question. But that said, I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from observing people who have good relationships with their objects, with their tools. I think there's such a thing as having a good relationship with a tool, even if it's an inanimate tool. Um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in noticing that like, there's a difference between good relationships and bad relationships, even when it comes to things that aren't alive or things that aren't people. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily like a one-to-one thing, like someone who treats tools poorly, like will by definition treat people poorly or, or vice versa or whatever. Oh yeah. But I do yeah. think there is some, you know, it's easy to get like to habituate ourselves to a certain like mode of, of work you know, especially when it comes to like these conversational interfaces, I think where it's, you know, it's easy to become like conversational in a way that's very like snappy and judgmental and just like telling a thing what to do. But then like the next time you hear a person talking in that same way, taking the same tone with you, which is, you know, it's like the Alexa is designed to take a specific type of like service industry tone with you. And if you get very accustomed to like speaking to it in a certain way, you'll get accustomed to speaking to other actual humans who take that tone with you. I think that's so true. And I think, you know, it's just worth being mindful of the way that we like treat objects because it can, you know, like trade, we were trading ourselves, we're building habits. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Binti and Okwu are in the ship. She is, you know, she goes in and she, she's not having a good time of it, right? Like she has a lot of trauma associated with this ship. She has like a couple of panic attacks and ends up actually having to like spend a lot of time in the lungs, in the plant room lungs. Um, and like sleep sleeping there you know with the smell of plants all around her to like feel better but um it's like a home. big hug it's like a yeah long it hug. is it's like a long hug <laughs> um they get they get home and um i will be honest this was the chapter that worked like the least for me um so when they because when they get home right like they come out of the ship and like she comes out and her her so one thing we haven't mentioned is her head tentacles her oku oko um which she has covered in um ochis so that she doesn't have to like so they're not visible to her parents or to her family or to like anyone because no one actually on earth yet knows that she is like part alien biology now right she's um, sort of relied both on covering them with ochis and also on the fact that she's been communicating via like, like the skype. S- skype equivalent yeah. and so in her mind like no one can tell and i think that's right. correct no one did tell yeah i think that that's true i mean you know there's also an element of like no one's really looking for that right <laughs> it's a weird thing to be looking for uh, <laughs> um but uh, when the, when she gets home, you know, she meets with her parents and family. Her family is there at the spaceport to like meet her. She's in like a Kush city that that seems to be. Um, I read a thing actually that um, Ninetti modeled the Kush cities off of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates and these other sort of like you know just like incredibly advanced futuristic like cities in like the desert in the in the Arabian Peninsula. That makes sense. I remember reading that she said she was the, mo- the the singular moment of inspiration at the very beginning before there was Binti at all was when she saw a jellyfish at, at like in the wild while she was visiting the UAE. Oh, cool. That makes sense. That, <laughs> that, that really makes sense. Yeah. The sort of like going back to what we were talking about, like the natural and the technological and the yeah. like, you know, the 
primitive quote marks and the <laughs> the um the the advanced and everything like all in one place oh yeah did you have something you wanted to mention about uh oh yeah sure i so yeah i i i listened back on the last episode and noticed that i had been using the word particularly kind of like like talking about the difference between like rural life and primitive life and i thought that like at the time i was speaking that i was making it very clear that when i'm saying primitive i'm being kind of ironic like that you know that like not only is like rural life not necessarily primitive, a lot of the things that we call primitive are not primitive. And the word primitive comes with all this like baggage that is like usually kind of bullshit. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I think this is one thing like in evolution, uh, like biological evolution. This is something that gets talked about sometimes where like we'll talk about like, you know, like a human as being like more evolved or more advanced than like a bacteria. But the truth is like we have had just as much time to evolve as like a bacteria has. It's not like bacteria are like super primitive and exactly the way that they used to be. Like they have also had like, you know, 4 billion years of evolution to go through (laughs) just like mammals have and, you know, and every, everything else. And so I think that that's true with societies too. Like, you know, even just because like a society looks one way that we wouldn't associate with advanced or whatever doesn't mean that there aren't reasons for what they do. And you, you pointed this out a little bit talking about like, you know, thinking about other societies from the perspective of like, what's their agency? Like, what do they actually want to be doing? What are they choosing to be doing? Um, and, you know, I think we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to, you know, now that they're at home and, and like, you know, the root and you really get to see this in the root chapters where, um, Binti's home is both, you know, like centuries old and made from like, you know, like wood and stone and this kind of thing. And then, you know, is also the home of like, you know, one of the like most advanced iPad manufacturing <laughs> plants in the world. Yeah, I, I love that uh, uh, dichotomy. And I'll, I'll just add real quick that, you know, primitive. I remember reading once that um Primitive is a concept that is basically analogous to the use of the word barbarian by the ancient Greeks. It just means worse than us, um, which you know, it, it, like I think I think that comes may with a seem- lot of judgment that isn't necessarily earned. right. Yeah, and 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 this is especially obvious when you think about it more specifically. If you think, for example, that conc- that primitive means um, less complex. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of thought to realize that less complex doesn't mean worse at anything. Mm-hmm. In many mm-hmm. cases, less complex is better at a specific task or or whatever it is. Well, and oftentimes, like, complexity is hidden and illegible exactly. and hard to actually see. Yeah, yeah. Or perhaps, like, all the things that we think of as having different complexities are actually in no meaningfully in no meaningful sense different in their level of complexity, like bacteria and, and humans. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the amount of... Yeah. Anyway, no. So so totally. But we'll we'll um, you know, the one thing. Sorry, like is just to rewind a little bit, um, you know, when they get out of the the shrimp ship, the Kush begin almost like immediately firing on Okwu and Binti has to like jump in between and like, you know, tell everyone to stop and her her Oku Oku like come out and begin waving. And, you know, she like, you know, like gets really big, like a puffer fish almost. And, you know, like. Uh, everyone stops firing and Okwu doesn't kill anyone. And uh, on one hand, I get it like what was being 
what they were going for. And on the other hand, this is the one place where the drama felt like a little bit manufactured and like almost like trying to be like, oh, no, what's going to happen? It's like it's the beginning of the book. I know it's going to happen. <laughs> like, and so this was like the one section, you know, I feel like the last book had like one thing that didn't quite work for me, which was like the way treeing was described. And this this book, it was this particular like point in the plot that I was just a little bit like left behind on. That's interesting. When I uh, read this part, I didn't have there were there was another thing that I feel that way about in this book, but mm-hmm. um, this moment didn't quite feel that way to me. It felt it felt it felt inevitable, but not in a um, plot requires you kind of way. It felt right. uh, it felt inevitable because we have been it's been established so many times that the Kush and the Medus have this very very bad relationship. And right. we've already seen one of these, you know, small, well, smaller scale version of this. Right. At Umza University. I guess, you know, for me, especially given what happens at the end, which I won't get too much into the details of right now, but like it almost felt like. Like it would have been nice to have the tension rise a little bit more almost like organically or gradually or something with like mm. people trying to <laughs> to like even like like pretending to follow the treaty instead of like literally just like Oku comes out and like the guards start firing at him. The impression, felt, yeah, this yeah. might be this might be incorrect, but the impression I got was that they were just like unaware of what was going to happen. That's insane though. How would they not I know. know? <laughs> I know that's insane, but but nonetheless I can sort of um that's an oversight, if you will, or that's the kind of thing that I could imagine a lot of explanations for. And that hmm. because it's even though it's stupid from the perspective of preserving peace, it's easy to imagine that people just don't really want to preserve it. Like I can imagine a lot of potential explanations to the point where it seems um, it's just sort of easy to uh, like justify that. It me. seems like if if, you know if the very first, you know, North Korean ambassador were coming to the like U S that wouldn't just happen. Like, you know, he wouldn't just like show up on air force one and kind of like dally around. Like there would be a lot of pomps and circumstance around that. And so if there weren't around Oakwoo's coming to earth, like that, see, it was particularly coming to like a Kush city on earth. Like you, th- you would think that like that would all be like set up and like, you know, beforehand, not like, Oh, by the way, yeah, There's but I mean, dues with me. Yeah, but but on the other hand, it is sort of almost an afterthought because originally he's not going to go with her. Originally, she thinks she's going to Earth by herself, right? And then he sort of is tacked on. I think that's what happens. No, no, that's not what happens. Like they like as soon as she d- tells him that she wants to go, he's like, I'll come with you. And there's still well, plenty yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. And the university has to set it up for both. It's not like a last minute decision in, in the least. Well, no, it's not a last minute decision, but it's also not a diplomatic mission that was originally intended by some like high level political sure, types. Sure, sure, sure. It, he's not an ambassador. He's a private citizen who's sort of going along with his friend and they're they're like wrangling some kind of some people are trying to establish some kind of diplomatic uh purpose or aspect to the trip um mm-hmm. alongside the alongside what's what's happening but mm-hmm. like my impression of what happened is basically she's going to go home oku hears about it he's like oh i'll go with you and then everybody sort of scrambles to to figure out how to like 
how to get what they happen. how to get what they want out of it or make that happen or, or whatever. That's fair. That's fair. And I don't want I don't want to you know I don't want to focus too much on it because it was like a very small thing for me. But it was um I feel like I don't I like like I want to <laughs> be honest where there are parts where I was like oh I didn't get this or I, I this didn't work for me or whatever with these kinds of things even when I like books yeah. I like I like looking at what does work and what doesn't work for me this is not to say that I like don't enjoy them too I just enjoy picking everything apart or you know <laughs> if I didn't I wouldn't have a goddamn yeah. podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's very fair very fair <laughs> um <laughs> So anyway, uh, we should, should probably speed up a little bit. Um, so they go back. Oh, I say that right as I'm like, this is probably the chapter I have the most to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, where they go back to Binti's like home home, like house yeah. home. And you get to see um, the Himba culture in person the first time instead of just like kind of binti's reflection on it and you know this chapter is really interesting in that it's start you know like going back home and this resonated for me a lot jesus um going back home starts off with everyone like excited to see each other like she's with her parents like she's with her family her sisters there with her kids like you know everyone's running around she's like she's like relaxed she's like ah i'm back home and then it doesn't take too long for the like seams to begin showing again you know it's like this thing where like you go back home and the first like you know couple of hours to couple of days are like oh why did i leave in the first place this is all so pleasant and then like all the usual bullshit starts like seeping through again and you have to deal with it it's like oh you know her dad isn't saying anything but he's been six and she's left and her sister like you know hates her for it and is gonna like make a scene at dinner about it and you know like everyone's mad that she's not going to be the master harmonizer and meanwhile you know binti's like well i'm not allowed to own property in this culture and this is actually kind of kind of interesting we get into himba culture it's like you realize like you know they're telling her like she has to do all these things to be this master harmonizer but like her brother who isn't particularly skillful at building astrolabes is actually going to own the family business because she's not allowed to own property she's not allowed to you know like own a business in this culture so it has to be her brother and she just has to work for him even though she's the one who's actually skilled at it and you get to begin seeing this kind of like oh yeah like you know a lot is expected of her and very little of her work is actually like appreciated in any like material or emotional way and you can kind of see like oh yeah i, I would want to like bounce from that situation as well <laughs> yeah this this the Slash this, i did bounce from you know <laughs> um this uh this chapter kind of starts what for me is the emotional core of the book i mean there's a lot going on in the other parts of the book not to say that they're sort of weak on these topics but like the interpersonal relationships that are laid out in the root and around her family really have a lot of narrative power they they really have a lot of uh a lot of tension and they really pull at you and drive the action even when she is no longer at her at the root the root is the name of her of her, of uh, her family, family like house. homestead kind of yeah thing. um even when she's no longer at the root you know the fact of these relationships in the background is driving so much of what happens and it really yeah. pulls you along there's a lot of really good tension around these relationships the this part is so effective at describing in almost gruesome detail the ways that people who 
our family can be cruel to each other or say say <laughs> oh, stuff God, that yeah. say stuff that they don't think is cruel but that feels so awful. <laughs> yeah. Like no one can hurt you like the people who you love and who Oh love yeah. You. Yeah, yeah. Um and and you know that might make it seem uh like this is hard to read, but it's not. It's it doesn't have the mm. quality <clears throat> this writing does not have the quality of being at least for me for me it doesn't have the quality of being like cringy or um oh god uh, that, that giving you that feeling of vicarious yeah. pain it 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 is painful but it it's also really compelling in this in this kind of positive way it draws you along because you don't ever feel like these people are trying to hurt each other they mm-hmm. are fundamentally on each other's side or they think that they are um and so it's it's kind of walks you right up to the edge of where to, at least for me it walks you right up to the edge of where it would actually hurt you as the reader to to read it but it doesn't take you over that and yeah. so it's it's really powerful for that reason i think that's a really great point that i hadn't i hadn't even considered but you're absolutely right that the like writing and the story itself are not painful it it's it's like compelling in a way. And it's not to say that it's like not treating it as painful for the people. But like everyone involved is hurt from like Binti to her dad, to her mom, yeah. to her sisters, to her little yeah. sister who doesn't understand what's going on. Like everyone's feelings are hurt by the situation. Yeah. But yeah, but it's a, it's also like a, you know, it's not even about being fair. It's just about being like, you know, kind of like presenting what is and presenting everyone's, you know, kind of like perspective fully. Yeah. And one of the things that really that I keep thinking about, actually, you know, since I read this for the first time and, and, and obviously still now, there's um, an expectation, I think, in a lot of in a lot of books I've read about kids growing up and leaving home, that the choice to leave home was obviously the correct choice, that there's this kind of way yeah. that a person grows up. There's a way that a person grows up in what a lot of uh new western literature that is like the right way to grow up and what you do in this way of growing up is you leave home and you establish yourself in as an independent entity separate from your family and distinct from them mm-hmm. and that is not the way that many humans have historically or continue to think about what growing up should look like and it's what's really interesting about this book is that unlike so much new popular western fiction this book does not especially science fiction or fantasy fiction. Um, this mm. book does not presume that establishing an atomic, individuated, non-family identity for a young person is obviously the correct thing for that person to have done. It turns right. out that that's what Binti does because that's what she wants and she decides it's right for her. But the uh, an alternative to that is presented that is that, that we are really given to, to feel is authentic and almost one, you know, in her right. mind. Well, it's what she does in the first book, but it's almost, you know, I, again, I still haven't read the third book. Likewise. I haven't either. I'm waiting. looking for, yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to doing it when we, like, I kind of wanted to read these two first and talk about exactly. the ones I had read before, before that one. But exactly, you know, I, so it's not clear to me that that is actually going to be the like final choice that she true, makes. True. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I like the, the, you know, the way that Nanetti talks about these three books is that um, in Binti, a young woman leaves home in Binti home, a young woman comes back home and in Binti, the night masquerade, a young woman becomes home. 
And so it's really unclear, like what, like, does that mean that like home is wherever she is? Or does it mean that she somehow like stays and like rearranges it in her, you know, I mean, I'm really curious to see like what that statement means. Yeah. And it's, it, it really says something, um, it's it's a wonderful quality of these books that they make it so that you not only, you know, from a narrative perspective, do you like not know what's going to happen? And so it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. exciting to not know what's going to happen. But also it, it says something really um, great about how mature and subtle the author's thinking about these themes is that she is presenting kind of two two possible answers to mm-hmm. the question, how do you want to grow up? And they both seem really um, to be treated with the same care and dignity. Uh, and, you know, we I don't think we would feel as readers, at least based on what we've read so far, that either choice was necessarily the wrong choice for Binti. It depends. Right. It depends. I mean, which is, you know, how it is in real life. Right. So um, I, I wanted to talk about one more thing, which is the fight with the sister in particular (laughs) i i have to admit this like (laughs) when she spit in her sister's face oh my god the the book treated it like this like oh my god how could she do that and i was like you fucking go girl (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i was very much on binti's side as well but like the her sister's side wasn't presented as unreasonable like her sister was presenting like a reasonable point of view which is that like you had an obligation to us that you said you were going to do and then you didn't do it and it's hurting us and like you should know that and like you need to like stop pretending like your choices were not for yourself and don't harm us and don't affect us your choices affect us and that's important um but she goes about that in a very like wrong-headed way especially given the person who she's talking to is the one who like makes these kinds of choices (laughs) right and also it's you know i mean what i would say to the sister uh is that you and by the way you know it's a good book when you are thinking that you're having conversations with the characters right Right. so what i would say to the sister is don't think about the mistakes that binti made in expressing herself think about what she was trying to express and why mm-hmm. um obviously you've both made mistakes in how you've presented your points of view but both of you should think about the other's point of view itself um right and why it, why why it exists um you know binti was stifled in ways that were not addressed by anybody right, right. and stifled like you know by her sister like it's her, her older sister who like took an active hand in raising her and took an active hand in making decisions such that you can't go to dances anymore because you have to study to be a harmonizer. And her sister never actually like reckons with the fact that she, you know, took her little sister's childhood away for her own like benefit and gain. And like, she doesn't, you know, reckon with the fact in which like she is also the ways in which she has also been selfish or maybe not selfish. Like maybe it's for the good of the family as a whole. Right. But the ways in which like Binti was asked to sacrifice for other people and not given a choice in that matter. Mm, Yeah. The dancing stuff in particular, I think is, is um, it's really interesting because it's kind of, it's it's so classic the the idea of a young person wanting to just uh, have fun in this wild and abandoned way, um, and not being allowed to have fun in that in that way by their parents for some reasonable, you know, future oriented right. purpose. 
It's um, very, it's very school story. It's kind of a trope of these. Yeah. Novels. Yeah. But it's also, it's also a trope of, of myth. Um, it's a trope. It's, it's a, a thing uh, that has uh, been happening, you know, in human society, as long as there's been human society. And it's just so interesting to see, uh, this take on that almost, you know, ur myth of child growing up, um, in a lot of modern Western stories, like I said, I mean, you know, the child is obviously right. It's con- it is yeah. considered to be, it is received that the child's desire to experience this kind of abandoned pleasure is correct. And that's interesting. It's interesting that that's what we're meant to think. That's just the water that our culture swims in. Um, mm-hmm. In this book, this is like, this is a point of view um, that is beyond that in the sense that it recognizes this received Western point of view, and it also recognizes another point of view that perhaps the opposite is true, perhaps the parents are right, and the child should simply, you know, accept that, and perhaps, Mm -hmm. you know, work through their anger, but like eventually accept that the parents were right to have them not dance. It, 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 It takes both of those potential answers to this, considers both of them, and it doesn't really come down firmly on one side or the other. I mean, you know, in some mm-hmm. sense, Binti made her choices and the other characters made they, their choices. But it's not like, you know, black and white. It's not like one no, side's right and the other isn't. It's a judgmental book in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's true. Like it's, it's, it's presenting different people who are representing their feelings and sides or whatever, like values, you know, feelings yeah. and values. Yeah. And it's, uh, that, that's actually maybe my favorite thing about Nnedi Okorafor's writing is that it's fundamentally non-judgmental but also mm-hmm. considers different points of view. I mean, you could be non-judgmental in a way that's somewhat boring by never considering some other point of view. But if you do mm-hmm. that and you consider others, then that's interesting. Indeed. So the next thing that happens is she sees the night masquerade, which is, is pretty baller. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, yeah. It's like a lot of like the 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 like fighting and dinner thing kind of happens and then a lot of these like outside elements kind of like come into the story in quick succession and almost a little bit like the first binti where it's like oh it's a school story no the medus take over and it's this other thing it's kind of like you know oh it's like an interpersonal drama about her family and it actually still is that but it's more complicated than it's presented as originally and like you know just taking a little step back like these books do a very good job of like introducing you to like small stakes that are like like not small but personal stakes that are really big and that you can really identify with and then like adding more and more of the setting and more and more Mm. characters and more and more like stuff into those like initial stakes Mm. and so like the stakes don't necessarily change but like they get a lot more complicated over time and like that complication actually ramps up really quickly but is presented in a way that you can follow very easily or i can follow very easily at least yeah i i really agree with that i think that's a good point um great point uh the the other thing is the the each piece that is being added on in and of itself is really really compelling i mean i could have easily Mm -hmm. read a whole book about um's university yeah Uh, yeah we keep getting only the like faintest hint of it and it's like it's like no more like it like, yeah. like you know <laughs> but i feel the same way about the root uh, their the, yeah. their village or for that matter the desert people that we're going to get to yep yep so um so the night masquerade 
Yes, the night masquerade, you know, she goes up to her room. She calls her old best friend who's like upset with her and becoming more and more traditional and more and more, you know, like he has a beard now and he's like one of the like council members and stuff. Um, And that goes really poorly. So it's kind of at her like lowest moment at home where she's really realizing that she, you know, like, okay, so she's never really quite felt like she belonged, but now she's really realizing that, like, oh, and now I can never belong. I have I have alien hair and I have like these, you know, more importantly than, you know, the Oku Oku, I just have these experiences that like have completely alienated me from my home, like society. And that's something that I relate to a lot like that feeling of like oh I always you know it's like you do this thing or I did this thing where I was like I went off to college and I studied abroad and I did all these things so then I like go back and I'm like well I should be able to you know like this should be helping me get like better at existing in Homer Alaska like I'm learning all these outside things I should be getting better and instead it's like this feeling of like no I just don't fit in here anymore you know and it's like this was like even less than I did <laughs> you know and oh, it's, man, a, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a brutal feeling. Um, I think there, you know, it isn't presented in quite this way in this book, but it reminded me a little bit of, uh, so I studied abroad. I, I, I know both of us studied abroad in college in different times and places, but, um, I studied abroad the second semester of my sophomore year. And so went from like living in like Paris, France, which was at the time the largest city that I'd ever lived in the first time actually living in Europe. Um, I went from that to going like straight back to Homer, Alaska and um, more so than at any other point, you know, going to Yale and back to Alaska and that kind of stuff had this real sense of like reverse culture shock, like the culture shock of going to Yale or of going to, France was stuff that I could like integrate pretty easily because I was like expecting it. I expected that like Yale was going to be a lot different from Homer. I expected that Paris was going to be a lot different from New Haven or Alaska, but I didn't expect that home would be so different Mm, (laughs) when I got back and would be so difficult. And, um, you know, like I, 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 you know, have like problems with depression and have my whole life. And that was like a really like tough time for me going back that particular summer. There was a lot of, you know, a lot to deal with and a lot of like, like it was so unexpected and I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, it was, that was, that was hard. And so I, I think I also appreciate this book from, from that perspective of like, you know, Binti comes back home expecting like, Oh, I get to, go on my pilgrimage and I get to like, you know, like take, like become a little bit more Himba again. Like I've been doing this Umza thing and I want to come back and like become more Himba again. And she gets back and is told, no, you don't exist in this space anymore. You are a woman who gets to see the night masquerade. You are not just Himba. You are also like, uh, the, these, like the, of desert people descent, you know, like, like all of this stuff that comes up really quickly in quick succession in the next couple of chapters here of like, you know, you thought you were coming back to kind of like reintegrate some of the Himba into you, but instead we're just going to like make it more clear that you don't exist in this space anymore. It's really brutal. I love how you put all that, dude. Um, it's a it's really brutal feeling. Uh, I identify with it at least to some extent too. Um, I think one one other part of it that it seems to be very important to Binti is that um, is the getting married piece. Uh, she, I think, oh, ha- yeah. had been assuming that she was going to marry Dede. Dede is that his name? Dede. Yeah, not explicitly, but I think that's implicitly kind right. of implied. 
and um, he is the the best friend who she talks to on the uh, Skype phone um, in her room at the root. And, you know, this person who she had kind of maybe always thought that she would end up with, who's her best friend, who um, they were children together. Um, he now is a bearded conservative man on the council mm-hmm. who he has not only, you know, they apparently they all always had had this kind of um, uh, friendly, uh, they joked. <clears throat> yeah, they'd had a friendly disagreement about how conservative they were. Uh, he was much more conservative than her in, in the sense of being much more aligned with Himba traditional values than, than she is. Um, but now he's turned into literally one of the bearded men that runs things. And of not, you know, of course she would never be able to marry him. That would be ridiculous. And that, that is and not very, only that he doesn't want it. He's like upset yeah. at her and calling her to tell her like to take her sister's side. Yeah. Yeah. The sister who she just spat at. Right. You know, um, so that that's that's really, really hard. Not only does she not get to do some future stuff that she wanted to do, but stuff is taken from her that she thought was hers. That's maybe something of how she feels. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's awful. And so, right. No, it is. It's hard. And I think so seeing, you know, maybe we should like seeing the night masquerade, which is this kind of like magical creature, right? Like I, I I, like, it seems to be like it. So the way it's described is as a, uh, oh, I'm, I don't want to get this wrong. (laughs) Um, but I think as like a person like made of straw and wearing a like big wooden mask and with smoke billowing out of the top of its head, um, and it points its like staff or cane or whatever it is at Binti. So she's looking from her room like outside and sees it outside and it points at her and says, you know, Binti, I see you, um, which is this really interesting thing. And then um, her her brother, I, I think it is it's like her brother and father or something like that, like bust into her room and are, you know, like, did you see it? Like, because they, they uh, uh, you know, I, I got the sense that either they saw it or they heard it or they realized something was happening. Well, none of the other women who were also there did. Um, and it's this, you know, like magical creature that usually only presents itself to men and only men can see and presents itself to men at like specific crossroads in their lives or specific like interesting times in their lives. And it's presenting itself to her. And I think it's this, you know, it's this big, it's this really interesting kind of thing of like, she's really despairing. She's at her most low. And then this thing happens that is both like marks her as like exceptional, but also like I was saying, kind of like exceptional in a way where you're like not a part of this thing that is, and the not being a part of the thing is why you're upset. And it's, you know, it's complicated. It's like really complicated yeah. for her. Yeah. And there, it's, it's worth, you know, emphasizing that this is a, a, a moment of kind of uh feminist claiming of previously, uh, patriarchal tradition um this uh night masquerade concept um uh i believe is an old Igbo tradition um and i think there are different versions of it i don't really know you know much about it but i believe that um at least in some versions of it uh it is the case that you know women don't get to participate it's a male tradition only mm-hmm. and so this is this is a very very explicit statement of 
taking over this, like of a feminist take takeover of this tradition, um, which is, you know, I think pretty cool. Right. And that's that's a lot of when I was kind of talking about the ways in which these are feminist books and the pre-read what I like. This is one scene that I was really thinking of heavily there. Yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, f- certainly you can see how from her perspective at in the moment, Binti might feel like this is yet another alienating thing. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's I think another part of what's going on here is that it's a it's a traditional culture. By the way, not something I I don't know if this is actually associated with himba culture at all, but in the book it is. Right, um, right. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, the books definitely kind of like meld these various, you know, they're not presenting exactly our earth and exactly yeah. like our thing. And they're, they're yeah. pretty clear about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also we don't know anything about these. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> like what I, we're I, talking about is very much like the way the book presents it, which yes, is not I a will, statement about the I will, real world. In I will way. try to fact check myself after this. Um, right. Well, I think it's also, you know, it's like, even as we talk about like Himba, like we talk about like Himba culture and people and stuff, sometimes like what we're talking about is like the Himbas that are presented in the book. That's right. And just, just taking the book text uh, you know, like we could just as easily be using a different word, just like, you know, just like Nanetti does for the Kush instead of calling them Arabs, which I think is a smart choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, there's this other ex- aspect of the Night Masquerade where it is a piece of Himba, book Himba, traditional culture that um, is saying, you know, even as these other pieces of your traditional culture uh, are now denying you where they might once have accepted you. I, the Night Masquerade, accept you. I see you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you are not cut off. Like traditional culture, one's home culture does not work in a simple fashion of accept or deny, binary accept or binary deny. It doesn't work like that. Um, your relationship with your home culture is co- is complicated. And even as the tide recedes in one place, the sand is revealed in that place. Um, and so even as, you know, perhaps... Dede doesn't want to marry her, the Night Masquerade sees her. And that's a really realistic, to me, depiction of the way that one's relationship changes, but it doesn't disappear or get entirely closed off or something like that. Yeah, I actually, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm talking about myself a whole lot. I just want to like that's say fine. one more thing because it brought it up, which was... Um, You're interesting. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, (laughs) the, uh, when I was applying for university for, for college, um, one of the thing, you know, you, you have to do like the, the college interviews, you know, they have alumni interview you, blah, blah, blah. And, um, one thing that came up, especially like some of the schools had alumni in Homer, my hometown, um, some didn't, but particularly the schools that had alumni in Homer, those alumni would often ask me like, Oh, do you plan on coming back to Homer? Right. Like, and, and I, this would be the case with my teachers and other people too. You know, I'm like applying to like Ivy league and other, like, you know, like I, I only applied to East coast schools. I knew I wanted to like get the fuck out of Dodge and get as far away as I could. Um, and so many people ask me like, Oh, are you planning on coming back to Homer with this, with this expectation that like, Oh, what you should do is like go spend four years, get a degree and then like come back and make Homer a better place, you know? And there's this, you know, it, like obviously the expectations for Binti are like different here, but there is this, you know, I, 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 I and I've known from talking to other people, especially other like Alaskan students at our alma mater 
that they too had this expectation placed on them and some of them embraced it. Like I, I, I had friends who did go back to like from Yale or from Columbia or like wherever, like go back home to, to Homer and do things or to Alaska generally and do, you know, really impressive stuff working in government or starting their own business or whatever. Uh, and then I also knew some of us were like, uh, fuck off. <laughs> like I am going to be myself not to come back here. Um, and it's, you know, but it's still something that like, I feel uh, I'm in my thirties and I still sometimes feel like, Oh, did I do something? Like I was given all this support as a kid. Do did I do something wrong by like taking that and leafing with it? You know, was that extractive somehow? Um, so, you know, the, the, the stuff you were talking about, the night masquerade, seeing her even while like her family doesn't, that kind of thing is, you know, all this stuff is so complicated. And I feel like particularly for those of us who, you know, don't necessarily have this expectation of college placed on us, like by, you know, like my family always hoped I would go to college and my, and my parents for like all the, you know, for everything, like we're actually very supportive of that. It was more this kind of like cultural societal thing um, for, for me. And that's, it's interesting. It's, 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 one reason I really like these books is that, you know, we talk about represent representation in science fiction and, you know, especially like in, in our kind of Afrofuturism episode, the importance of like representing of black people being able to represent themselves in science fiction and fantasy. But like, there's also a way like this book makes like me feel seen, <laughs> you know, it's like this representation of like someone who isn't from the culture that they're going into. And, you know, not just in a like, oh, like, you know, like I'm on a scholarship or whatever, but like, no, like this is like vastly foreign to me and it's changing me in ways that I can't really comprehend. Um, I like it. It's nice. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I think the one, one term that might be applied to that is the curb cut effect. Do you know I, this? I've never heard of that. No. The curb cut effect is, so curb cuts are those things at, uh, on the curb where it has a little ramp. Mm -hmm. There's a little ramp on the curb. Um, curb cuts were, uh, you know, didn't used to exist. And the reason they exist is because of, uh, it's an, it's a, it's a means of, originally it was a means of helping Americans with disabilities, Americans who right. travel by wheel instead of by foot. Um, mm -hmm. but the, the, you know, as soon as curb cuts were instituted, um, it became obvious very quickly that, a lot of Americans who don't travel by wheel still get a lot of use out of them. So there's this way in which uh, trying to help a minority group uh, ended up being really helpful to like most people or mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that mm -hmm. phenomenon is called the curb cut effect, where you start out trying to do something. Tr you, you start out trying to do something necessary for one group of people and it ends up helping everybody. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I don't know if I'm claiming that this is helping everybody. I, you know, maybe more the claim that I'm making is that like, not to say that I'm like uh, in a minority population, but, but the degree to which like, you know, in, in, in looking at this one thing from a different cultural perspective than the like usual cultural perspective you see in science fiction, like I see stuff about myself reflected in it. That is, that is useful. I mean, like I like reading fiction that like reflects parts of myself back to me because it makes it easier for me to like both through the samenesses and the differences, like interrogate those parts of myself. Um, you know, that's part of why I'm like talking, 
talking very openly about this stuff on this podcast, even though I like wouldn't frequently because it's, you know, it's kind of like a useful, interesting, like um, almost like emotional project to kind of like look at those things. Mm. Cool. Uh, so, oh, you know, the other thing that we missed, I just really want to mention this is a beautiful thing when mm-hmm. Binti and uh, Okwu go to the lake and he Aww. like swims and there's all the like, you know, like glowing, Aww. glowing. Uh, there's some sort of like bioluminescent animal or something. And it's like, he's swirling amongst the galaxies of these animals. It was, it's very cool. It's very nice. It was like the moment that like Okwu gets to have fun, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh yeah, that's right. The Medus also have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is a character. We haven't talked as much about him, but he, you know, he, yeah. There's there's stuff going on there. I mean, he came. So his his choice to come to Earth is a pretty interesting one, you right. know. And and certainly a choice he wouldn't have made when we meet him in Binti One. Um, he's very angry when we meet him in Binti One, and he you still get the sense that he is still angry, but he has decided to proactively insert himself in a volatile situation, not for the purpose of causing damage but for the purpose of learning or maybe even preventing damage Mm -hmm. so it's kind of cool growth on okwa's part that he's even decided to come to earth and then when he's in earth he really focuses on these sort of learning experiences and on and you know there are moments when he gets very upset and like violence may may well have occurred were bindi not there but he also is is just interested in in his surroundings in a way that's really interesting he he's he, you get the sense that he's he's adopting – he's been changed too. And this is a very right. different p- point in his life, but it's really interesting to see. We also learn well, a little – Well, and her yeah. – oh, yeah. I th- you were maybe going to say the same thing, but yeah. – um, you know, her uh, Binti's mother at one point mentions offhandedly that the Medus are hive minds. And we also through later in the book, it like Binti is able to communicate with Oku through her uh, Oku Oku Oko. She's able to like even across long distances, like contact him and like mind meld and like talk with him. And, um, you know, you get the sense that like, you know, Binti's anger is not to her, but clearly, at least when I was reading, it was like her anger was clearly like because she was like part of Medus now. But you also get the sense that in these kind of in this like, you know, really close relationship that involves like some sort of telepathic and uh, empathetic link, like Okwu is also becoming more like Binti. Like they're, you know, they're yeah. affecting each other, like all good relationships do. Yeah, they are. And so then the desert people come, the Enyi Zinyaria. Yeah. And we learn a lot of interesting things about them and about uh, Binti's heritage. Mm-hmm. About the Adon that she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so the book changes yet again, and we have yet, a, yep. yet another shift into a different, slightly different mode. And right. some of the things that we thought about Binti uh, turn out not to be true. Mm-hmm. I think in, in particular there, her father is actually, or was like grew up as a Enyes in Yaria. And so Binti has this, you know, she's not entirely like of Himba ethnicity. She also has this, you know, other ethnicity within her, um, her, her grand, her grandparents were desert people. 
Um, and, I, you know, I keep wanting to say Ennis and Yaria because, you know, the desert people is a bit of a like slur, I guess, uh, for them, you know, again, right. just like we were talking about this kind of like, you know, primitive versus rural thing and like where the Kush view the Himba as like primitive because they're more rural in the same way the Himba view the desert people as primitive because they're more rural yet they're nomadic they're not even settled although it turns out that they are um but you know so it's like this (laughs) this like chain of like everyone thinking the folks who are different from them are more primitive like no matter like which direction that's right yeah it turns out whoever you are you have prejudice or (laughs) the potential to have prejudice Um, um And so, yeah, and so I think we'll probably move through the plot a little bit more quickly here, but they come, you know, this tribe of people kind of like shows up and one of them begins arguing with uh, Binti's father and you quickly quickly realize that this is Binti's grandmother, this is Binti's father's mother arguing with him. And instead of going on her pilgrimage, which is supposed to start tomorrow, instead, she's going to have to go with them. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier with this idea of like, oh, she thought she was going to come back and do her pilgrimage. And instead, she has to do something different. It's like a different part of her heritage that she didn't even know that she had that she has to like engage with instead of her himba like pilgrimage heritage it turns out our heritages are so complicated we don't just have what heritage we think we have we have a combination of what we think we have and what other people think we have and sometimes those other people don't agree with each other mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and you and you get a little bit of the sense of kind of like the colorism here too where where binti's dad is a very like dark-skinned african and you know they they keep calling it old african dark skin um and you know same with binti like much more so than even like the other himba people although for binti i think that's covered by the ought geez a little bit so it's less of an issue for her whereas her dad has always been a little bit um like embarrassed of it you you learn yeah and he actually puts like some men do apparently he puts some ojis in his most uh himba men don't but some do. He puts some ojis in his hair to smooth it. Right. So it doesn't look quite as, uh, as I guess, as Zenarian, as any Zenarian. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, um, you know, and Binti is learning this about herself for the first time. It becomes clear. Like she had no idea about this. Although, you know, I think even she kind of says like, oh, it should have been a lot more obvious, <laughs> like in <laughs> retrospect, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is, you know, also just like, you know, talk about like big mood, right? Like that sense of like, oh, yeah, that thing that I always should have known about myself and <laughs> kind of ignored. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, eventually she she so she leaves with them. And I, you know, I yeah. think we can. Her grandmother basically takes her with them. They go on a journey to the village of the Enyuzenaria. And on the right. co- over the course of that journey to the village, um, Binti does some reminiscing about her own past. She learns, she talks to the uh, Zenarians, in particular, this uh, gentleman right. named Mwinyi. Mwinyi. Yeah, and Mwinyi, like her, is a harmonizer, although he harmonizes in a slightly different way. And it's actually this kind of cool thing to see how, you know, it's like these different, like the people with the same skill using it differently because of their like cultural heritage and their cultural background and like the cultures they exist in, as well as like the technology that they have inside of themselves, which we'll get to talk about a little bit here. Um, Yeah, so what do we learn about the Enyi Zenaria? 
So when we first see them, we learn that they wave their hands around a whole lot. And when they speak and when they don't speak and everyone kind of views this as a bit of a like, you know, look at these people. They must have some neurological disorder, like something's wrong with them because they're out in the desert in the sun the, the whole time. But what we learn is that, you know, centuries previous before humanity had made contact with the greater outside world before there was before there were spaceships before there were airplanes um a group of aliens came to earth and landed in the namibian desert um and made contact with the enyes and yaria made contact with this particular like group of people um and they became friends you know these like you know the nomadic desert people and these like you know aliens who are on their way to umza university landed and made friends with each other and um the the golden people as the aliens were called or just the zinyaria so there's the enyes and yaria which are the you know the 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 desert people the humans um and then there's the zinyaria which are the aliens are also called the golden people uh left left them a gift and the gift were um nanoparticles which exist within their bloodstream which allow them to communicate with each other silently and that's what the hand motions are the hand motions are them accessing these controls where they're able to more or less like you know, text each other no matter where they are. You learn that Binti's father has this ability and is kind of in constant contact with his mother, <laughs> which is a trip. I love that. It's so yeah. funny. Like of all the secrets for a person to have, they're secretly talking to their mom all the time is got to be one of the best. It's so great. Yep. So uh, <laughs> I didn't even thought of it that way. I love that. Um, so all of this kind of information gets doled out slowly over the course of the desert trip. The other thing that we see happen is a, um, flashback that Binti has to when she found her a dawn mm-hmm. where when she did so, she was like, uh, th- this is also, we were talking about the, you know, not going to the dance. This is when we learn about this, where she had, she had run away from home because she wasn't allowed to go to a dance. Uh, as often in these cases, like no one noticed that she had run away from home because she just like kind of like went down to the stream to kick around. You know, she like went out to the desert to like play around as kids do. Um, and came back before she was missed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> came back when she was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, as part of that, she actually met the princess of the Enyi Zinaria, uh, Zinari. Yeah, I keep I keep transposing the lie on that. Um. Anyway, met the princess of the Enyes and Yaria and found the Adon at the same time kind of growing under this like, you know, like wither or not withered, flower. Um, rugged desert flower. Mm-hmm. And um, it's this kind of cool moment where you realize that, like, you know, she's had some experience with these people before. And the Adon you we learn through this journey is uh ancient technology from the golden people it was you know something that got dropped along the way and left in the desert that she happened to find like hundreds of years later and that this this happens sometimes right like there's you know like on earth sometimes you bump into like this alien technology which is this really cool little um detail that i really liked but uh you know to the point that there's like a word for it (laughs) you know the himba have a word for like oh we bumped into this technology that no one understands um yeah and so 
I guess the other thing that we we learn is um you know Binti this the desert people tell Binti that she's only going to be gone for like overnight <laughs> and the next day they're like we lied you're going to be gone for days and days you better like call Okwu and tell him so that your family doesn't worry um which is really a kind of you know is yet another lie is you know her grandmother has been in contact with her dad the whole time. So like, obviously the family knows, but she wants to see if, if Binti can actually use her Oko Oko to communicate with Okwu, which is like a really kind of like cool point where you realize that like, Oh, Binti is tapped into this hive mind, even if she doesn't quite know how to like use it well yet. Yeah. And she is able to do it. She does manage to make contact with Okwu. Okwu. Um, and so, she they arrive uh eventually in the Anizanaria village. I think it takes them like three days to get there. Yeah. And they, you know, they have various conversations along the way where a lot of this stuff is revealed. And they and they arrive and and uh Binti is presented with the I I can't remember if it's an option or if she's told that she must go to the Aria. It's a choice. Yeah. Oh, well, she's presented with the choice of turning on this technology because right. it's in her bloodstream too she also has the nano whatevers right. that let her like text like invisitext right so <laughs> she's given the choice so she has it but she, it's not on it's off and she has the option of going through the ritual that will turn it on and so it's an mm-hmm. interesting moment of you know she's had these experiences of feeling like part of her heritage is closed off to her but then all of a sudden also so this this new thing by the way you know in your body is another piece of our family's past. Do you mm-hmm. want to turn it on? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she decides that she does, and she goes to meet the princess, the Arya, um, who she had met once before, um, and uh, they go through this ritual that will turn it on. And that's that's a pretty intense. I you know the other thing just to rewind just a bit the like village is really cool that they oh, live yeah, in. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so cool. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the, um, and this, uh, <laughs> maybe culturally insensitive, but reminded me of the village of the, uh, of the, the, the like cat people and the sparrow where they like, kind of like live in these sort of like communal spaces. And, you know, there, there's one point where, um, you know, she sees that like a grandfather and granddaughter live together because they both really like collecting rocks and her, you know, the, the daughter's parents are like, yeah, you know, she and her grandfather can like live together. We don't need rocks in two apartments. <laughs> and it's a sense of like, you know, people live a little bit more communally and like spaced out and spread out and like based on interest instead of based on, just family you know it's not like these nuclear family units living together it's more complicated than that yeah and uh they live in these um like far out in the desert in these sort of rock in this like village Mm. that's cut into the rocks Um, yeah they're like cliff dwellings or, or at least rock cave dwellings yeah and so uh she and also throughout this process, you know, we kind of mentioned a little bit like she's begun to bond and become friends with uh Minyi, the other harm, the uh Enyzenarian harm harmonizer, mm-hmm. and they've established kind of a rapport. And so, for some of the rest of the action that takes place, he kind of goes with her, he's her, right. he's her sort of guide. Um, so he, yeah, a cultural guide who's like the same age and the same position, and you know, yeah. maybe maybe gets her a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And who she can, it feels like she can trust him a little bit more even than her grandmother because he's you know because he didn't lie to her a bunch of times. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, Grandma, we are flesh and blood, but have you told me any true things? Like, <laughs> so um, yeah. So she goes and she does it. I mean, you know, like spoiler alert, she turns them on and. Um, <laughs> There's some there's some cool stuff around, uh, you know, she speaks. We get more history of the, you know, kind of more world building history of the Zinyaria. And there's a um, there's an owl that it turns out is actually a, you know, it's unclear exactly what it is. It's one of the like, you know, creatures that was alive also when the Ennis and Yaria was. And some days it's an owl and some days it's something else. And you get this sense of like, oh, there's actually a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand here between the Night Masquerade and the Adon and this like owl and these sort of like, there's these like old different creatures mm. that exist on Earth and that it like exists amongst humans and, you know, kind of like and very much on like the outskirts of human, like they and humans can interact sometimes, but only sometimes. Um, and it gives for a very kind of like cool, like old and like mysterious feeling to everything. It's a little bit, you know, um, like weird fictiony and the same. And, and I mean that like, not like weird as in like wrong or bad, but as in is like the genre of weird fiction that like China Mieville and um, Jeff Vandermeer and like others write within. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> sorry, I, I was, uh, I was thinking uh, about uh, There's that no part time of the for book. thinking I on know. a podcast. I know. I know there isn't got a, got a content. Um, so she's learning all this stuff and she's having a lot of content. Yeah. She's learning all this stuff and she's having these, uh, incredible experiences, uh, far away. But then all of a sudden she, Binti, are, uh, experiences this like rush of emotion and her tentacles start writhing and mm. she feels this emptiness and right. she, and this is after they've been turned on yes. and she's learning how to communicate and like mm -hmm. begins communicating with her dad. Yeah. And, um, and she suddenly senses that something has happened to Aquu. Mm -hmm. And so she gets in touch with her dad and he tells her a cryptic message that I almost want to read in its entirety. Yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> um, we haven't read anything this this episode. True, true. That would true. be good to do. Um, so. Because this is more or less the end of the, like this yeah, is the cliffhanger that the book ends on more That's or right. Less. You know, Papa, I sent. What's happened? What happened to Aquu? Where are you? I am in the hinterland. His answer came immediately. Why did you allow this? You used to be such a beautiful girl. His words hit me like a slap and I felt it slip through my body and for a moment I forgot everything. I rubbed my forehead, then ran a finger over my okuoko. Mine, I thought. These are mine. I raised my hands and wrote, Papa, I'm fine. Please, what is happening? There was a long pause before the words came. And when they came, I sat back down on the ground and the words moved down with me. The Kush came and there was a fight with Okwu. It took many, but they may have killed it. Now the Medus are coming. We can't get out. The Kush have set fire to the root. We cannot get out. But the walls will protect us. The root is the root. We will be okay. Stay where you are. And what does Binti do? She does not stay where she is. Oh, no. Oh, no. She and uh, Minyi, to uh, lead her, uh, go back towards the route, and the book ends with them heading back towards the route. Right. So unlike the last book, this one, like, 
definitely ends on a cliffhanger and definitely ends with the sense of like, okay, we, we have, we have something else and we have a lot more in store for us. We have a lot of, you know, balls in the air that both you and I don't actually know how they come down and whether that's they get true. caught when they do. I'm really looking forward to reading the final book. I've been waiting too. for just this moment. In fact, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> we've both been holding off reading it until we like record this episode, you know, talking like months ago about doing this book. Like I've been holding off on reading. I know. I know. Me the too. Night Masquerade so it's that we could. We very could exciting. This point. <laughs> very exciting. Can't wait. Yep. I hope I, I mean, the, the stuff I've heard about it is very good. You oh, know, yeah. It's always yeah. like, I hope we haven't built it up too much, but I don't. I would be surprised if we had. Yeah. All right, man. Well, great. Yeah. So, I mean, the is there that was the book? Um, I kind of liked doing it this way. I mean, I, I think we could, you know, maybe get faster at some of it. But this was kind of a, a fun way to talk about the book. Yeah, we could try this again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, anything else that we wanted to say about the book? Uh, read it, like pick it up, buy it, buy all three of them. There's a, you know, you can yeah. buy them as a group. They're fun. They're good. I I'm like liking it so much yeah. on my reread that I'm, I, I really hope other people pick it up and read it. Same. I have a question for you, Adrian. Yeah. What, what's, what is it? Is another open-ended question that will be impossible for me to answer. <laughs> If you had to pick between, yeah. if you could invent another character, uh, another alien character out of whole cloth that would th- be thematically relevant to these books, what would it be? Uh, Terminator. Um, <laughs> if you had to pick for it. between any Zenaria communication technology uh-huh. as it is presented uh-huh. and our current like real world communication technology, but you only get one forever. I mean, which is more appealing to you? Do you want to look like a weirdo moving your hands around? Um, Or are you, would you rather just have what we have, which is pretty, you know, works really well. The thing about what we have is that like anyone can have a phone. Whereas like only the Enyus and Yari are able to speak to each other in this way. That might be a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I don't know if there's, you know, like, you know, is the... I guess I'll, sti- I I'll stipulate what... that, that like, people who you would want to talk to will have the thing, right. whichever you and pick. And no one else will. <laughs> yeah, well, in the end scenario tech case, um, yeah, it will be restricted in some in some way, yeah. but it will not be restricted. It won't, it won't be that people you want to talk to won't have it. Right. Well, I think this comes from, like, the, you know, the place that I'm at, which is I don't know, like, what that commute, like, what that one specific community would be for me. So I think I have to say, like, our current communication technology just because, you know. That's so interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who I'd talk to. I mean, I feel like I would rather have a restricted thing. Right. And I think this is maybe goes to me and you. Yeah. Like the, you know, like I like talking anonymously to people on the internet. I love the fact, (laughs) I love the fact that it's restricted. And I also love the fact that you don't have to carry it. I really like that. That's kind of nice. Yeah. Although I don't love the fact that it's always on. Oh, oh yeah. That is awful. Yeah. You know, like I actually Mm. like that I can turn my phone off and put it away. That actually, that's kind of huge. I forgot about that. (laughs) 
you know i think that's the thing with this like you know this communication like it's not that it's like super advanced communication technology that is unlike anything you've you've ever seen it's that it's like limited in like a lot of ways it's you know it 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 ties you to a people it creates a bit of a hive mind with that people it you know like it's always on and always puts you in communication with this one community yeah and like for better or for worse it can't get turned off and for better or for worse it's not something that goes away like once it's on it's in you and you're a part of the community yeah it's a great example of using technology to to create and establish um cultural norms in a way in a way that's not in, in a way that's different from how we do it in the english-speaking west right well i think it's also a good way of kind of like you know making literal these like community ties that like you know it's like yeah it's like a literally her heritage like coming up and becoming visible to her like these invisible things inside of you and like yeah. making them very literal like oh, we yeah. talked about in the last yeah. episode very true i like that a lot cool um i don't think i have any questions for you this time around um okay who's actually i what's what what um let's make predictions what happens in the next oh, predictions what one prediction each okay i predict that binti will go back to umzu hmm. to finish her schooling but her eventual goal will be to return to the desert to do some important work there some important mm-hmm. cross-cultural harmonizing work. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I predict that Okwu is not dead and that we will see the night masquerade again. I mean, it's yes, the name yes. of the book. I mean, so maybe yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a like cop out. I just realized, happening. but like, like I, I, you know, I also, here, here's what I actually predict. Cause like her, her oh, one thing we didn't mention, her Adon is broken and doesn't work. Oh, anymore. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she is going to have to fix it. Yeah. Like she, and she like blames herself. Like she thinks she did something really wrong in breaking it because she like didn't know how to use it. Um, and my prediction is that there's some sort of connection between the Adon and the Night Masquerade. That like, yeah. like those yeah. two will somehow interact with each other. And these like voices saying like, both I see you and that's not your full name. Like, yeah. you know, there's, there's something yeah. to that. I bet you're right. I don't know what. I'm going to keep mine vague so I can claim <laughs> that I was right. <laughs> All right, dude. All right, All right, cool. Dude. Well, you know, thank you to everyone for listening. The usual outro stuff, you know, um, our Twitter is Spectology Pod on Twitter. I am posting, I'm trying to post something like some Afrofuturist like art or music or something every single day. Um, it, Matt, if you have stuff you want me to post, like send it to me oh. and I will, I will happily do that. I'd, I'd love that. Cause I'm, I feel like I'm hitting a little bit of a, of a, of a wall recently. Yeah, uh, totally. I'd love to like Close. expand the stuff that I found and I know you have different tastes than I do. So I'd love that. And then, um, you know, same with for our listeners. If you guys like anyone who's been tweeting me stuff, I've been retweeting it and like mentioning it. Um, also we are on gmail so if you want to send us an email if you like what we've talked about if you didn't if you have any of your own thoughts we'll often read them on air if you want us to um that is also spectologypod at gmail.com um our art is by noah bradley at noahbradley.com really cool art and he has a lot of stuff for sale in his shop our music is really cool spacey sounds from wj on soundcloud you can search him just wj on soundcloud um 
Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah. Final thing. Rate and review us on iTunes. It's a pain in the ass. It really helps. Um, you know, we've been getting a lot of downloads and a lot of love for this podcast, which is, you know, kind of like amazing to see. And I would, you know, like, I really appreciate everyone who's been like talking to us and who's been listening. Like, it's really cool. I did not necessarily expect this to like be as popular and as well received as it is. Um, and so that, that warms, warms my, you know, crusty little heart. And, uh, I, you know, any, anyone who wants to review us on iTunes that like helps a lot and helps other people find us probably one of the best ways too. Um, yeah, I think that's it for us. We will be back. Oh, one final thing. We will be back next week with the final post read in the Binti trilogy. Uh, and then we're going to take a week off. So usually we do the pre-read in the first week of the month. Uh, we've had to record a whole lot this month. So we're going to do the pre-read in the second month in July. And July has five weeks, or the second week in July. July is five weeks, so it'll still give everyone plenty of time. And we'll announce the book early so that people know what we're reading. We'll probably do that next week. Um, but yeah. So we're looking forward to talking to you about Binti one more time, reading the book, going to get started like immediately after this, um, you know, and looking forward to talking to everyone again here soon. Yeah. Can't wait to read. All right. Bye, everyone. See you later. Bye, Matt.